show you how it's done. Just do both legs together like this. Begin. There we go. Fine. That's it. Just easy. That's the way. Fine. 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 And rest. Inhale. Do you realize what we've done already in just a few minutes, students? We have worked the body from the toes all the way up to the head. You didn't realize that, huh? We worked the feet, the hands, the stomach, the hips, and you thought exercise was hard. These gymnastics are fun, believe me, they are. This is just what the doctor ordered, and the good Lord above. You think he's not smiling down on you for making an effort to keep that body that he has loaned to you to go through this life with? You think he's not happy about you keeping the condition? You know, students, what the good book says, that our bodies are God's living temples. But how many tumble-down shacks do you see as you walk around the streets, huh? Plenty of them. People that are pretty much out of shape. Ungrateful, I'd call them. Somebody gave me a wonderful present, like the good Lord gave me this body. And when they don't keep the present in good condition, doesn't that show... Oh, we're apparently up. Okay, Lack well, welcome. Uh, huh? You are listening sure to WCBN FM. How about something Arbor, for the front of the arm? To another edition. You know, the front of the arm pretty of important. Of Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Flava Flav. And yeah, not a good week for discos. Stars from the past. Ring my bell. No, wait, she didn't do that one. Uh, Anita, that's Anita Ward. Uh, Donna Summer, of course. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just the other day, Robin Gibb. Yeah. So, hmm. uh, well, the shoes were horrible in the 70s. So were the hairstyles. Um, by the way, if you get an opportunity and you're out and about, uh, Dan Rather is giving a talk over at the Michigan Theater tonight at 7 o'clock. So, uh, I don't. Is that free? Yeah. Uh, it's part of the, uh, actually an Ann Arbor Public Library lecture hmm. series this month. And obviously, due to his notoriety, he's, uh, not going to be talking at the district library, and apparently will be at the Michigan Theater tonight. So, uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth? But in all, with all seriousness, I, I hope somebody. I'm I'm going to scoot over there after the show, and uh, hopefully, I'll get called on to ask a question because what I'm going to ask him about is the uh, National Guard controversy in the 2004 election. Was he set up with? A classic CIA fake papers operation. Bait and switch. Bait and switch. Basically, the story that he was reporting at the time was correct. Uh, but uh, the documents that he used in a 60 Minutes 2, he was actually on 60 Minutes 2 uh, that year. Uh, that story was uh, utilized some documents that apparently were forgeries. But the, they were forgeries of basically the true the truth of the story so it was a very interesting setup because it uh, distracted the public uh, a blogger immediately claimed they were forgeries and his uh, ability to state that they were forgeries that quickly was exceedingly suspicious so of course, a long and storied career as a CBS anchor. Yeah, uh, Dan rather uh, despite some embarrassing moments there towards the end of it, I guess um, his reporting from the floor of the uh, convention in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, remarkable uh, piece of historical footage to watch as Walter Cronkite anchored from afar as uh, he was basically dragged away. 
Dan Rather. Yeah, and amazingly, he was actually a sort of a cub reporter on the day of the Kennedy assassination. So he was one of the first uh, people to give uh, on-the-ground reports uh, regarding that tragic event. Uh, one thing that we did want to talk a little bit about this week was... Speaking uh, of forged documents. Speaking of forged <laughs> documents. Uh, the, the 60th, or the excuse me, the 40th anniversary of the uh, assassination attempt on George Wallace occurred. And with the recent passing of Chuck Colson, I wanted to read an interesting conversation that Colson and Nixon had uh, on the morning, well, on the evening of May 15th. Uh, basically, that was the night. He was shot uh, in Laurel, Maryland. And it was interestingly that year running as a Democrat. He'd run as an independent in, 2000, in uh, 1968. Nixon allegedly sicked the IRS on his brother, and they had a meeting, uh, supposedly a phone conversation, in which uh, he explained to Wallace that he must run as a Democrat, not as an independent. To help his brother out. Because Wallace carried five states in uh, 1968, and Nixon had already sort of developed his southern strategy, uh, borrowing some political genius from... Uh, Kevin Phillips, a, a very interesting writer who has, uh, at this point in his career, turned on the Republicans. Ironically, his last several books have been superb exposés of the uh, maldistribution of wealth and how this is damaging the United States economy and how the Republicans are responsible for it. Well, anyway, on the night of May 15th, good old Chuck Colson in a one-minute conversation between 9.23 and 9.24 p.m., talks with Nixon to, quote, discuss possible responses. Uh, this, by the way, from the superb Stanley Cutler book entitled Abuse of Power, The New Nixon Tapes. Cutler is a... It's a very coherent uh, and careful selection yeah. of uh, important passages and pieces of these tapes. Anyway, Nixon... Talking to Charles Colson, is he a left-winger or a right-winger? Colson, well, he's going to be a left-winger by the time we're through, I think. Good. Keep at that. Keep at that. Yeah, I just wish that... This is Colson now. God, I wish I'd thought sooner about planting a little literature out there. In Bremer's Milwaukee apartment, Nixon laughs. It may be a little late... Although I've got one source that maybe good. Nixon. Colson, uh, you think you could think about that? I mean, if they found it near his apartment, it would be helpful. Look, there in the shrub is a McGovern button. <laughs> yes, Arthur Bremer, the I uh, should have brought in the Gore Vidal essay called The Master Forger of State Papers, which is a speculative uh Discussion of E. Howard Hunt and Charles Colson planting forged documents in Arthur Bremer's Milwaukee apartment. Um, one of the wittiest, funniest essays, I think, ever. It's, it's a fine piece. Gore Vidal is a, a wry critic of American public. Because as he notes, all of these assassins seem to keep diaries. Yeah, that's convenient, isn't it? So I think the actual name of the essay is The Diary of Arthur Bremer. 
Anne Hunt, of course, is characterized as the master forger of state papers since uh, when he joined the plumber's unit back in 71. Uh, he forged some state document, uh, state documents, State Department documents that tried to link John F. Kennedy to the assassination of Diem. Mm. And these, of course, were forgeries. But uh, one wonders exactly why Hunt would be doing anything like that, what the point was, and how many other things he forged. Well, and as I mentioned briefly uh, before the program began, uh, listeners may or may not know that E. Howard Hunt was a pulp writer of, of some notoriety. I recently acquired a novel, short novel, uh, here, a hard-boiled detective type thing uh, called House Dick from the... Uh, mid-50s, late-50s, uh, that involves a burglary at a Washington, D.C. hotel. But no, not that one. Uh, just another one. It's a crime caper, so uh, well acquainted with the techniques of fiction. And, of course, in an earlier conversation with President Nixon, Colson, on the 12th of August, um, met Nixon in the Oval Office, and they had this very interesting exchange regarding E. Howard Hunt, uh, who Colson had just hired. He says, uh, he tells Nixon, Hunt is a first-rate analyst who spent his whole life in subversive warfare. Thank God. We know he's on our side. Who's been an admirer of ours and yours since the Alger Hiss case. He's been going through... This digging up of names, people, incidents, and events. We can build one hell of a case, and given the right forum, and the forum is Congress, Nixon, the right case, of course. It's really to get our Democratic friends talking about the Pentagon Papers, the damn thing, and defending and running away from it, fighting each other about it. It's their problem, not ours. Colson says, I can just, Nixon, gosh, just so you have a mind about it <laughs> is because I briefed Ehrlichman on it today on the investigative side. Egil Crow is working on that too. So you have in mind, we need those hearings. Let's keep this, God damn, I want this thing inflamed. <laughs> so here, of course, is... Uh, the inspiration of the numerous dirty tricks that would follow, and of course, Hunt's activity in the plumber's unit, uh, named after, quote, stopping leaks, though Nixon delights throughout the Watergate. Uh, his own selective release of secret information. Yeah, he's, he's leaking, he's bragging about leaking. In fact, it's interesting that in his many references to the Hiss case uh, during the Watergate tapes, he talks about how they won it in the media, thanks to my leaking. <laughs> so Nixon, uh, ever the uh, political operative with the devious mind, was always willing to manipulate the media uh, for his own political purposes. I only wish that the audio were uh, more readily available on a lot of these recordings. Uh, some of us just want to hear these things. Yeah. <laughs> They're fun to read. And, of course, fascinating for what they reveal as far as skullduggery and uh, the psychological contortions that you can watch Nixon putting himself through, knowing that this tape system is in place to ultimately perhaps 
secure his legendary status, uh, but ultimately at the same time just capturing all the, you know, chicanery and, yeah. and uh, just a complete uh, basket case of, a, of, a, of an individual psychologically. Yeah, it's interesting that the new book, uh, the, the, the Don Folsom book, uh, has a psychiatrist in there so pretty much concluding that Nixon was... Uh, psychologically uh, incapable of being president. Yes, he knew a lot about public affairs and read history books, but there was some sort of personality disorder that uh, was unmistakable. Yeah, that's, uh, and you know, and that's the nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, we'll have all summer to consider the many other things that uh, there are to say about Nixon. And of course, to revisit what uh, others have said uh, back when those events were current uh and of course this whole thing with arthur bremer is like what an opportunistic oh hey hey wallace got shot we can do we, this is good we can use this yeah hey, hey. <laughs> we can plant documents right uh yeah i mean that raises all sorts of interesting suggestions about some of the uh, assassinations that had already occurred uh, over the previous decade Indeed. because uh Certainly, there was uh, lots of uh, literature uh, involved in um, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, portraying Sirhan Sirhan and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald um, and James Earl Ray, for that matter, in, in yeah. di different lights and characteristics. Um, <coughs> recent uh, Harper's Index has got some very good things, by the way, on the... Uh, um, uh, sort of the economic aspects of the United States and what's going on in our country. Uh, of course, just this past week, there's been a big story about J.P. Morgan Chase and these uh, um, losses suffered by this trading unit regarding the Volcker Rule. And the Volcker Rule has still not been implemented. The Volcker Rule basically prevents... Uh, banks from quote-unquote proprietary trading, which means they're trading, uh, and, and the reason that J.P. Morgan is relevant is that they are an FDIC bank. So when they gamble with money, at some level they're gambling with taxpayer money. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase is in an unusual situation in that they're one of the solvent banks in the United States and they actually did play a constructive role in the financial crisis of 2007-2008 as the banks unraveled. As a strong bank, they were able to buy up toxic assets, shall we say, with both Bear Stearns and ultimately Wachovia. Uh, they took TARP money um, at the insistence of Secretary of Treasurer, uh, Treasury uh, Hank Paulson, um, because Paulson in the meetings uh, with the big banks let it be known several things. First of all, he wanted all the big banks to take money because he didn't want the market uh, to be informed of which banks were solvent and which banks were insolvent, so to speak. And uh, this gets back to the issue of too big to fail and whether or not we need to... Um, cut these banks down to size because uh, liberal Democrats uh, during the so-called Dodd-Frank debate 
which is uh, where the Volcker rule is still yet to be implemented, we're pretty much arguing that too big to fail means too big to exist. Um, because the banks, if they're just simply stocks, and of course we had lots of hoopla all week about uh, the IPO regarding Facebook. All right. And I don't want to go into that. I'm not a big fan of Facebook. <laughs> and I don't understand the media's fascination with it. But that's another story. And Facebook have, has gone down in value, uh, I, interestingly. Yes, the uh, insiders have reaped billions. But uh, most analysts point out that Facebook is heavily overvalued at the current stock price. So it'll be very interesting to see how, how that corrects itself. How it corrects itself. The hoopla caused all of this sort of irrational exuberance, to borrow a phrase from Greenspan, mm. to explain why Facebook's stock price was priced so high and then went up, of course. But it's come down. Anyway, Harper's Index got some interesting factoids that uh, I always enjoy uh, regarding some of these uh, very strange things uh, going on in our economy. Percentage of income gains in the first year of the recovery that went to 1% of U.S. earners, 93%. Now, of course, this happened... Uh, Primarily because the stock market had gone down so low uh, when Obama came into office. It was plunging downward after the TARP shenanigans. And I think at one point, the Standard & Poor's reached the magical number of 666. And of course, when it falls like that, anybody with spare and excess cash and capital, yeah, that's where you score big. And of course, just a couple weeks ago, we saw Michelle Bachman get into a uh, major political controversy because she had shortly after uh, quitting the presidential race decided to apply for S Swiss citizenship she's entitled to this because her husband the uh, disco queen himself <laughs> uh, and I'm forgetting his name I think it's Marcus but he apparently is Swiss and of course Michelle Bachman has got something like 23 children most of them adopted, and several of them, along with her, decided to take advantage of this Swiss citizenship. Get out of here while the getting's good? Yeah. <laughs> no such luck. So uh, it makes you wonder. Now, the percentage of profits that GE paid in federal taxes in the past decade, 2.3%. That's even lower than Mitt Romney's rate portion of U.S. wealth in the United States that's controlled by people over the age of 42, nine-tenths. Portion of African Americans that have no assets other than a car, one-quarter. Total advertising revenue of U.S. newspapers in 2011, 23 billion. Of Google, 36.5 billion. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Amount of money that the average worker in America spends on coffee. This startled me. 1,092. Whew. 
Those expensive uh, cups, bigger than you need anyway. Yeah, those lotties have got to go. And another interesting item. Portion of Sudan's oil exports last year bought by China, two-thirds. Well, the statistic about uh, the amount of wealth uh, in the hands of people over a certain age, I mean, that's sort of, I think, probably uh, an inevitability in any particular historical era. Yeah. Uh, just given the nature of uh, professional development and uh, these sorts of things. But the uh, the really striking and disturbing one is the 93% of uh, the, one of the first ones yeah. about... Uh, the top one percent. The top one percent, and there's that number again that, of course, we heard so much about uh, as the uh, Occupy movement flourished briefly. Um, of course, the weather's getting nice. We saw unrest in Chicago over the weekend. Yeah, uh, involved in uh, protest movement. I noticed in a copy of the new uh, Progressive magazine uh, that Noam Chomsky has a new series of pamphlets out, uh, which is good to see him uh, invigorate an old. Uh, he's an old geezer. Uh, he's going to utilize the print medium, and I'm sure they're available online as well. But uh, if you prefer the uh, historical impact that a pamphlet can make, uh, you can actually purchase and order these through the Progressive's uh, website, I'm sure. There's an advertisement in the recent issue uh, in which he talks about some of the uh, points that the Occupy movement is is, is trying to make in this 1%. Uh, is a real thing. Uh, people assume, uh, especially the right-wingers and the Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beckers, uh, that, oh, this is just some sort of ideological construct. But it's very clearly uh, demonstrable that the vast bulk of this country's wealth, its media outlets, are in the hands of a very select few. And they're not select, really. They're self-chosen. Because they buy, yeah, and, this power. and and they're concentrated, and of course, Facebook is just the, the latest permutation of that. It's interesting. Over the week, uh, with these uh, G8 meetings and the NATO meetings, mm -hmm. we have down down here been an advocate of the abolition of NATO for quite some time. Yeah, I heard somebody on the BBC say just the other night, you know, it's beginning to look as though NATO has no purpose anymore. And I thought, oh. If they listened to Gray Matters, they would have heard that 15 years ago. Yeah, like wh when did they come to this realization? Because, Eesh. of course, the the real relevance, I, I mean, you know, NATO was created uh, as part of the Cold War, um, which, you know, at the time uh, didn't even make any sense to me because the idea in my mind that the Soviet Union, certainly they took control of the Eastern European countries with... Uh, with regimes that were uh, communist and sympathetic to their idea of communism, but the idea that the the Soviet Union was going to continue on into into uh, Western Europe, I thought was it's just far fetched. Yeah. The Soviet Union suffered enormous uh, losses in World War II. In fact, uh, I've been reading a very scholar, a huge scholarly work about the Eastern War. And it's more appalling than I even realized. Wow. I didn't realize, for instance, that 80% of the German uh, soldiers that were killed died on the Eastern Front. 80%. That 35 million people, Germans and, and Russians, died in World War II. The United States in World War II lost 405,000 people. A huge number, make no mistake of that. But 
this is the whole it's unimaginable really it's unimaginable and these these racist policies of adolf hitler uh just massacring outright uh the, the various units of the german military as well as the ss just shooting people outright i mean far more people died of hunger and outright uh gunshot wounds than were uh systematically gassed in the gas chambers right. those uh horrific plans came late and uh, hitler's racist ideology uh, is unbelievable he's uh <laughs> it's just reading this book is uh is uh is difficult because you realize that uh, most uh citizens of, of world war ii here in the united states don't appreciate this uh, the extent of the killing that was going on in eastern europe it's just amazing to, to, to read and uh, so and, and NATO began to lose its way even throughout the Cold War because the the desire to uh, incorporate Turkey into its ranks belies the very title of the organization yeah uh, it, you know it was oh well uh, we're going to encircle to contain the old containment theory uh, but you know seen from the other perspective uh, containment is entrapment and, you know, we've seen this with the spread of U.S. military bases uh, throughout the Middle East and some of the former Soviet republics, where if you take a moment to take off your American spectacles and just look at the arrangement of military bases from an Iranian perspective, you see you're encircled. Uh, and so it's a hostile posture which invites adversary. Yeah, and of course Stalin was so paranoid himself that... He misinterpreted uh, some of these events uh, in the late 40s, but this uh, deliberate policy of hunger and starvation that uh, Hitler utilized in Eastern Europe is just remarkable. He actually had a kind of a racist theory regarding Lebensraum, you know. Lebensraum, living room. Living room, room, yeah. In which he was going to expand Ger Germanic people into Eastern Europe to live, and his plan basically was to depopulate... Um, both Jews and Slavs just outright execute them all so that he could create this living room, so to speak. It's remarkable stuff. Uh, it's uh, when I get done with the book, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about it because it's uh, it uh, the numbers are just mind-boggling. Um, that uh, 35 million uh, Germans and Russians perished in World War II. Uh, those are, just, you know, that's that's the bulk of of the deaths and uh, that horrific event. Um, and it's ironic, by the way, that, that it may uh, fall on Turkey, of all countries, to maybe bail out Greece. Yeah. They're one of the economies in, uh, in Europe that's doing better uh, because they're not in the euro. And uh, I, I'm... Someone better tell the Armenian lobby to hush up. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, over the weekend, I'm... Uh, I, I didn't see laugh a, at a lot of ex reporting on what what was really discussed, but I think it was uh, refreshing to see that the new uh, president of France, Hollande, is trying to temper this austerity concept that uh, is so destructive to the European economy at the moment. And the irony of Barack Obama's uh, re-election chances is it may depend on the ongoing saga of Greece and whether they can survive uh, 
as a member of the Euro, what's going to happen? Because they, once again, are, are going to have elections, I think, in a month. What's the uh, famous Grover Norquist quote about... Uh, strangling the baby in the bathtub. Strangling the baby in the bathtub, right. Uh, he didn't want to throw the... Uh, it's paraphrasing the old idea of, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. He says you just want to get it down so it's small enough so that you can strangle the baby, the baby being government. And so, well, perhaps uh, Grover Norquist can see here a golden opportunity if Greece is the cradle of civilization, that perhaps this is the chance to snuff civilization and the Enlightenment out forever. Well, and one of the more remarkable stories over the past couple of weeks has been the ongoing debate in Congress about these very minor, very small budget cuts that right. the, the Pentagon is going to uh, endure. That Panetta, the Secretary of Defense Panetta, has had to go up to Congress on Capitol Hill and say, why are you now messing up the spending cut plans that you already agreed to a, a, a year ago exactly. as part of the bu budget uh, agreement back when they were discussing the debt ceiling? Um, the military so grotesquely bloated that these cuts are just the beginning yeah. of necessary cuts. But now they want to say, no, 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 this is too much of a cut. Yeah, they're, they're, they're debating like six to eight billion dollars of, of money that they want restored from the cuts that they'd already agreed to. It's, it's remarkable duplicity, but not surprising. And... Uh, Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, by the way, you mentioned Chomsky, and by the way, he's got an, an item in the May edition of In These Times, but I did want to read one little paragraph about the actual war that is going on in the country, and this regards the war that the Republican Party has uh, implemented against women uh, and birth control, uh, an ongoing uh, controversy mm -hmm. that I don't understand why we're even discussing this anymore, but... Uh, it's, it's scary. Uh, in an article by Marilyn Katch, she writes, In the past year, as the elected Tea Partiers have aligned themselves with the religious fundamentalists, Republicans in the House have introduced eight anti-choice bills, each of which received the same 225 GOP uh, support of the representatives. In the first half of 2011, close to 1,000 measures related to reproductive health and rights from those curtailing contraception to those mandating transvaginal ultrasounds were introduced into state legislatures. Of the 28 states controlled by the Republicans, 26 have passed laws that limit women's reproductive choices, according to the Guttmachter Institute. 55% of American women of reproductive age live in those states hostile to abortion, in 2011, up from 31% in 2010. Scary. That's a pretty explicit attack on women. And uh, 1,000 laws. The, yeah. The, this is the party that's talking about freedom. Hmm. And uh, government intrusion, yeah. government too big. Well, the GOP dominated Wisconsin state legislature. It recently repealed the Equal Pay Enforcement Act. State Representative Glenn Grotham uh, authored the measure, uh, quote, this is an important bill because it improves Wisconsin's business climate. Because now it's okay to shortchange women. This is a serious plank in the Republican agenda, apparently. Well, we would like to thank Andrew for engineering. Do stay tuned. Uh, Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. A quick brain damage to Lance Stevenson. Showing
That's Francis Scrapper Blackwell in the background doing blues in D, telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Jerry Mack, your host for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues.